But what's happened in the past doesn't dictate what's going to happen in the future. Where we are today is the point we make those decisions of I'm going to go this direction or I'm going to go that one. I'm going to learn how to run and I'm going to get good at it as good as I possibly can. And that's going to be awesome. And then I'm going to create the change that I need in the world. You are listening to the Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and boy, do I have a story for you today. It comes from Mina Gooley, the CEO of Thirst, who after being told she couldn't walk again, decided to run seven marathons in seven weeks in seven different countries to spread the word to you all that, well, the world is running out of water. And if you don't believe her, sit back, take a listen, and please welcome the real Mina Gooley. Running, here we go in five, four. It's so official. Two and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Realers Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is water advocate, the founder of Thirst, and an ultra marathon runner, Miss Mina Gooley. Mina, thanks for being with us today. No worries. Thanks for inviting me. Of course, of course. So, Mina. Uh, your your story is an inspiring one. Uh, watching all of the clips, reading through uh, your autobiography, uh, doing all the research, it just makes me go, I wish we had more people like Mina Gulli in our life. So the first question I have for you today, Mina, is how did you run into the water crisis? Uh, thanks, Kevin. Good question. I like it. Good pun. Um, and it's very kind of you to introduce me um, in such uh forgiving terms most people refer to me as crazy lunacy all kinds of like crazy kind of descriptors um the water crisis uh it's interesting to me that you use the word run into um, because two aspects of that are worth reflecting on the first is Um, just an introduction to how I even learned about water. So I grew up in Australia when I was a kid. We had about 10 years of drought, the great 10-year drought, Um, and I used to make sure that we turned off the tap when we brushed our teeth, that we took short showers, and that every time we took a shower when we were waiting for the water to heat up, we'd put the plug in the bottom of the bath, wait for the water to heat up, and we'd take out the water from the bottom of the shower Um, in order to put it on the garden because every single drop of water counted. And we'd have dinnertime conversations about ways to jerry-rig different pieces of household equipment to save water. You know, could you get the grey water out of the washing machine and put it onto the garden? So I really had, I grew up with this concept that water is a really critical, important resource. It's very scarce and limited and we need to protect it with everything we had. Um, My career went through a whole bunch of different twists and turns and whilst I always knew that water was important, I never truly understood just how critical it is not only for us to drink and the plants to live on but for our economies to function and our societies to grow. And it wasn't until I was asked to moderate a conversation at the World Economic Forum that I truly had an aha moment of all the things that I've been focused on have been really tinkering around the edge of a much more significant problem that we're all facing, our entire generation and generations to come are facing. And that is that we have a massive global water crisis, that it's not just Australia and it's not just the 10 years of drought, our entire world is facing a global water crisis. So significant and so major that by 2030, 
there's forecast to be a 40% gap between the amount of water we need and the amount of water that's available to us on this planet to use. And that's a twofold problem. It's a problem because we're using water too fast and it's a problem because um, there's less water available in the places that we need it. So on the demand side, we think about water in the context of water that comes out of the tap. That's how I grew up. We were you know, taking the buckets out of the shower. The reality is that our the biggest component of our water footprint is not our showers and our turning off the tap in our households. It is in the things that we use and we buy and we consume every day. So Kevin, just what you're wearing today, the smart shirt and the jacket and the pants, all of those things took more water to make than all of the water you have drunk in your entire lifetime. It's a scary statistic, right? So all the water that went into just what you're wearing today took more water to make than all the water you have drunk in your entire lifetime. Really? And the consequence of that, when you start to say, well, that's just not one Kevin on the planet, there's billions of people using and buying billions of clothes. So this is not your only smart outfit. I'm sure you've got a, a cupboard full. You don't just have a cupboard full of clothes. You've got a cupboard full of food. And you've got power in your home. There's power that goes into the computer that you're talking to me on and the phone that's probably in your pocket and the, the lights and the fans and the air conditioners and all of those things. And our water footprint as a civilization is enormous. We rely on water for absolutely everything in our lives. And the problem, if you look at the supply side and you say, well, I just mentioned before that there's not going to be enough to continue for, for us to continue in the way that we are, is that that is going to have dramatic impact on our ability as societies to grow, our economies to thrive, and the next generation to be able to live the lives that we want to live them. And my big reality on the stage at the World Economic Forum on that day was, wow, this is not just an Australia problem. It's not just an us problem. It's an everyone, everywhere problem, not just now, but for the future. I thought, what am I doing? I've been focused on, at that stage, climate change and you know, investing and building businesses around climate change. But if climate change is the teeth, if, if climate change is a shark, water is the teeth. That's the place we're going to get bitten first. Mm. And this is a problem we need to solve. How, and also, how is it such a big problem that nobody is talking about? Why is it not making front page news? Why are CEOs and leaders of governments not talking about this issue of water? It needs to be famous. You know, it needs to be that topic of conversation and this thing that we all know and understand that we all value. And so on the stage, I set out to try to um, to try to, to solve it. And that was my, the beginning of what has become a very, um, quite an amazing journey for me. It's something I'm at a point in my life I never thought I'd, I'd be, uh, something I would never have predicted if you'd asked me when I was a kid, which brings me back to the first part, which is how did I run into water? And I... Uh, <laughs> So running is a weird thing because uh, lots of people look at me and they assume that I'm some crazy, amazing athlete and I'm like some awesome, accomplished, long-distance runner and the, uh, this could not be more opposite from the truth. The hard truth is, A, I'm old, um, B, I'm so not naturally talented at running, it's not funny. Like I'm properly not talented at running. There are some people who can just like go and run for miles and it's easy and they run really fast and they can do intervals and they do hills and all these kinds of things. I'm like, that's just so not me. 
so not me. I just wrote a blog the other day about like I am scared to go on Strava because I, people will really see how bad at running I actually am. When I grew up, I was like the kid in a corner who was never picked for a sports team, never, ever, never. Like everyone would be like, yeah, I'll take that one and that one and that one and, you know, you can have her. She's like more of a disadvantage than an advantage. So it's so weird for me to be in this situation where running has become kind of what I do. And I did it because we needed to have a way to create a hook for people to pay attention to water. I wanted to show that we have to go outside of our comfort zones to be able to do and do things that are meaningful. I wanted to show that every one of us is capable of things that we never dreamt of. And I wanted to show you don't have to be anyone to be someone. You know, I, you can be that kid in the corner that never got picked for a sports team and then stand up and go, you know what, that's not me. How other people define me is not who I am. Who I am is who I am true to internally inside me and that's the thing that counts. And unless we can believe all of those things, we'll never be able to create global change because we'll always find excuses, we'll always be listening to other people will always say, well, it's never been done before, therefore it can't be done. But what's happened in the past doesn't dictate what's going to happen in the future. Where we are today is the point we make those decisions of I'm going to go this direction or I'm going to go that one. I'm going to learn how to run and I'm going to get good at it, as good as I possibly can, and that's going to be awesome and then I'm going to create the change that I need in the world. So um, I mean, that's a very long-winded answer to your question, but it's a it's so far from being a straightforward, um, yes, not just I, you know, I, I bumped into this issue or I bumped into that. It's just like been this um, evolving journey. It's an incredible one. I mean, you really can't lead until you understand yourself and your own self-identity, or at least it's very difficult to. Was, uh, is there a point that sticks out to you in your career when you discovered your self-identity? Uh, that aligned with your passion, aligned with your skills, uh, and there was a point of uh, maybe no return? Um, yeah, I don't really think that I'm using, like, the skills that I, sometimes I think are uh, the skills that I've had, I have are, like, not the skills I'm using. Like, why am I running? I'm really bad at it. Why am I doing this? <laughs> I talked to my coach and he's like, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh I think a, a deeper question for me is at what point did I say in my life, I care so much about this one thing that I'm going to do whatever it takes to solve it. Um, this is a problem that's so big and it's so much bigger than me. I'll do anything um, to find a way to fix that. And I can tell you exactly where that point was because um, I was in the middle. So in 2016, I set out to do my first big expedition, which was to run across seven deserts on seven continents in seven weeks. Um, okay, when I talk about some of these things after the fact, I still can't quite believe I did it and I have to go back and look at the pictures to go, oh, yeah, I actually did that because it just sounds like complete lunacy and craziness. And I think, well, actually, I, I did do that. We did sleep in tents under the stars at the Atacama and we did interview these people all the way along the way and learnt their stories and told them to the world. You know, it was like. It was incredibly hard and challenging, but also so fundamentally inspiring. 
And one of the places that we went to was in South Africa, ran in a desert. I didn't even know the name of this desert before. And it's called the Richtersfeld Desert. And it's on the southern tip of the Namib Desert. So the desert runs through Namibia and it goes down across the border into South Africa. Hmm. And along the border between Namibia and South Africa is a river called the Orange River. And the Orange River is used for... Um, all kinds of things like um, tourism and agriculture and living and supplying water to local communities and all of that kind of stuff, the normal things that rivers are used for. And as we were running through the Richtersfeld, we got to a place where we knew we had to cross the Orange River. And it's a crossing point and they've got barges. So you put your vehicles onto the barge and you float across the river and you go on the other side. And obviously the plan was to keep running. When we got down to the river, the guys, um, the local team uh, was just standing there and they walked back to me with their arms crossed in front of their head saying, you know, you can't, no, you can't, you, you can't go down here. This is, you know, it's, it, we can't get the cars across. We've got a major problem. The only way to go around the river is by a three to six hour drive along terrible roads. Um, and all I'm thinking is what's happened to the river? Like how on earth, forget forget the drive, we can figure that part out. Forget the fact that I'm now going to have to run like hundreds of kilometres to get where we wanted to get to in the first place. What's the problem with the river? Are you serious? And I said to the guys, has this ever happened, um, has this happened before? And they said to me, no, this is the first time hmm. in the last nine years that it's been this low that you can see all the markets nine eight seven years and even at seven years you can see where the marker went where the their um the the parks and rangers team had a had a, a place that used to be on the water and it's sitting there high and dry and they said i said to them what's what's the problem here and they pointed on the other side and they said when you eventually get on the other side of this river and you run and you run through all those bright green grape plantations, you will understand what the problem is. And it turns out that a huge amount of the river water had been used for uh, watering these grape plantations. Now, you have, to, you have to remember, we're in a desert. Uh, we are about nine hours drive from any of the closest ports or exit points. These are grapes that are being used to put on tables around the world. And as the guys said to me, who I later met at the grape plantations, the irony, Mina, is that grapes are not a food. They're a luxury. This river has been drained for grapes. And I thought two things. Hmm. The first one is I'm never going to look at grapes the same way again. The second was at that moment, standing on the bank of the Richtersfeld, talking to those local guys, I knew that my life had fundamentally changed and that it, until that point I'd kind of thought, oh, I'm going to do this expedition and then I'll go back to my normal existence, you know, building businesses and, and investment funds and things. And I knew at that point that was not my future, that actually this was what I was going to do for the rest of my life, that I was going to dedicate my life to solving our water crisis. And at that point I knew that I would do whatever it takes to make that happen because I don't want this future for the next generation. I don't want the next generation to grow up and 
have a have their future limited by their ability to access water. They should only be limited by their ability to dreams to dream the dreams that they want to dream. It's incredible. Now, maybe illustrate to our audience because I apologize. I probably skipped over a few major things that had happened throughout your journey. Illustrate to our audience the the purpose of thirst, uh, how you're trying to uh, raise awareness and education about some of the, the problems that, are, that are, our world is facing um, and why you are doing what you're doing for our audience. Uh, yeah, doing what we're doing because we don't have enough water to live the lives we want to live in the future. Maybe today and tomorrow, yes, but future generations, definitely not. And as I was talking to a Bedouin guy um, in Jordan and he said to me, made a comment, which I think is like the epitome of the problem, which is, um, Mina, I don't think the next world war will be fought over terrorism or oil. I think it will be fought over water. Maybe not in my lifetime, but definitely in my children's lifetime. And my biggest fear is that they will become the first water refugees. I sat there, we're sitting under a lone tree in the middle of the Arabian desert, having a cup of tea as my break in the middle of my run, um, different kind of aid station, uh, in the middle of my run. And I thought to myself, you know what? This is not a future that we need anybody to have, not in Jordan, not in Australia, not in the United States or the UK or, or you know, South Africa or Mali or Mar- Mauritius, anywhere. This is not a future for anyone anywhere on this planet. And so why, why am I doing what I'm doing? Because water is the biggest risk facing our society. Because for the last 10 years, the World Economic Forum has listed water as one of the biggest five risks in terms of impact. And nobody is paying attention. Nobody. Water is not on the front page of the papers. Water is not on the top of the list of priorities of companies. And yet the risk that they have is absolutely phenomenal and completely integral to their ongoing operations, not quantified, in many cases not assessed, and most cases not disclosed. We need to change this. And the only way to create change is by moving people to start asking the questions that need to be asked so that we get companies, we get investors, and we get policymakers to start to put water on the top of the agenda and pay attention and say, right, first, let's quantify how we're exposed, what this issue is. Second, how we're exposed to it. And third, what we need to do to mitigate our risk against it, because it's only if we can go through that process that we will start to actually get a full idea of what the problem is, and then be able to put in place the solutions to solve it. The reality is, the vast proportion of companies, of investors and policymakers are completely water blind. And that needs to change because we know that once they're enlightened, once they understand that water is a major risk, we un- they understand how they're connected to it, then they start to look at acting to mitigate risk. We know that is the case. What we need to do is to accelerate change. And the way to do that is to move people. So let's let's move some people today, Mina. Uh, you mentioned my jacket earlier, right? You said this is uh, it not just your jacket, water. mate. It's like your jacket, your shirt, like the, the whole shirt, outfit. The whole outfit. You said the whole outfit uh, consumed more water than I have ever drank in my entire life. Now that's a big statement. Now I want you to break this down for our audience. What you mean by that? Okay, 
So let's think about, um, for example, a shirt. Or do you eat meat, Kevin? Yes, I eat meat. Do you remember last time you ate a hamburger? Was it really good and juicy? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So whether it's a hamburger or whether it's a shirt, it's about the same amount of water, give or take a couple of hundred liters. So let's just let's just go with either of them. We think about those products only because of either what we see on a plate or what we wear when we pull out of the wardrobe in the morning and then start ironing. We just think about it as a shirt. Mm. The reality is that either of those things are made up of a whole bunch of products that took a lot of water to make. In the case of a hamburger, it's a cow. The cow had to grow using grass. It ate the grass. The grass was watered. And so if you think about a cow in its whole life cycle, just one cow takes about an Olympic-sized swimming pool of water in order for it to get to the slaughterhouse. If you think about it in terms of a shirt, shirt is the same. A shirt is made up of natural fibres. Yours looks like a smart cotton shirt. So let's assume it was made, it's made with cotton. Those cotton fibres grew in a plant using water in order to be able to deliver that, that cotton to you. And, you know, to be, to be honest, often we, we think about cotton as just being, oh, yeah, it's a lovely natural fibre. It's a lovely natural fibre that takes quite a lot of water to make, which is obviously not a problem in places where there's loads of water, but it is a problem in places where there isn't enough water. Um, if you um, think about, um, just, to, just to put that in context, one of the places I ran um, in my last expedition when I tried to run 100 marathons in 100 days was uh, I ran to a place called the RLC. And the Aral Sea sounds like it's, you know, a beautiful sea. It used to be the fourth biggest inland ocean in the world. Amazing, a massive, massive expanse of water. Um, I ran from a place called Moynac, which is an old port, um, still has the pier and it's like an old port town and you can still talk to the fishermen there who remember what it was like to fish. And the day we stood at Moynac about to go and do my run, and talking to the local fishermen, we turned around to look at this massive, be- beautiful expanse of inland ocean, and it is desert dry. Hmm. It is so dry, the wrecks, the carcasses of the old boats are sitting not in a sea of water, but in a sea of sand with dunes stretching as far as you can see. The old port now at Moynac is more than 200 kilometres or five days of running back-to-back marathons to get from where the port is now to where the water is today. Just think about that for a moment. The water, it's like someone pulled the plug out and it's happened in our lifetime. 30 years ago, the water was lapping at the port of Moynac and now it's far out in the distance. Why? Because of poor management because overuse for agriculture and for 30 years people were being told, scientists were saying, if you continue using water like this, we're going to run out. The the ocean will dry up. Nobody paid attention. One time, okay, you know you don't pay attention to the scientists, it's pretty bad, we've now destroyed this ocean. On the banks of the Salt Lake in the United States, I met farmers, I met communities and they said to me you know what Mina our salt lake is drying up poor management of water the scientists are telling us if we continue to manage water in this way the great salt lake will dry up and nobody is paying attention 
we fear that we are going to become exactly like the RLC. And that, how can, how can we be in communities, in environments, in places where this happens time and time again? It's just crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So my point being about all of this is that those two circumstances, but particularly RLC, is primarily from the growth of cotton. Uzbekistan used to be one of the greatest cotton growers in the world and now has not enough water to be able to grow the cotton that they need. It's, it's definitely scary, Mina. And let's just continue uh, to scare our audience a little bit more uh, if we can here. Uh, inspiring people because this is not just about the problem, but this is about solutions that are in our hands. So once we know and we understand, okay, right, this this shirt is not just a shirt. This shirt came from somewhere. It's like the water that comes out of our tap. Water does not come from a tap. Water comes from an entire ecosystem. A shirt doesn't just come off a rack. And a shirt comes from the cotton that gets planted in places around the world by farmers like the guys that I've met in Egypt and in India and in you know on the banks of the RLC. Our cotton came from places that are linked to environmental issues and linked, most importantly, to people. Our stuff isn't our stuff. Our stuff is about people's stories. And once we start to realize that and we rethink things and we rethink the food we're eating, the clothes that we're wearing, the power that we're using, all of a sudden we start to value them more. And that means we value water. And if we can value water, we might have a chance at learning how to protect it. It, it, it's 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 impressive that uh, none of our leaders are really talking about these issues, considering this is something that we all consume on a daily basis. Uh, and also considering that I think it's like 97 percent of the world's fresh water is used through agriculture uh, and through commercial use. And uh, and like of that three percent, like the other like two point one percent is used for commercial and some other type of use. So we're really only consuming like point oh, like nine percent of the world's fresh water, which is kind of a scary thought to think about. Now, on a micro scale, a lot of uh, people in uh, you know slums or in, in communities, one, don't have access to water or two, are fighting over it. Uh, to you, Mina, what does that look on a macro scale when water gets to be so scarce and uh, everyone seems to be awake uh, and, and it starts to run out in developing countries around the world? Yeah, Um If you fly over a country like Egypt and you look out of the plane down at the ground, you see brown land as far as the eye can see into the distance. But if you are lucky enough to fly over the Nile River, you see a ribbon of green. You see the water and you see these bright green verdant banks. And that is because without water, there is no life. Anyone who spent time in a desert will know that the sounds of a desert are vastly different from the sounds of a forest like the Amazon. I ran, I was lucky enough to run down the Amazon. You run through these rainforests and it is teeming with life, filled with water, filled with the thing that we need. You run in a desert you're lucky enough to see maybe a few insects scurrying around, but you do not see the kind of life that exists in those forests. Whether it's people, whether it's communities, societies or economies, without water we have nothing. 
if you look around all the things that are around you right now, Kevin, the, the backdrop behind you, the microphone, all of those things take water. It takes water to extract minerals from the ground. It takes water to produce the power. It takes water for everything. So when water is a scarce resource, the competition for that scarce resource goes up. And when the competition for scarce resource goes up, fighting often happens, especially when you need that resource to literally live on, whether it's to um, look after your cattle, look after your, um, the crops that you're growing or to drink. And in those situations, um, debate can be quite ferocious. In 2017, the United Nations listed 53 of the world's conflicts being water-related. And this is a major, major problem. If you take an overlay of the most water-scarce countries in the world and you overlay it with some of the most um, geopolitically unstable um, countries, you find that there is a massive match of some of the most geopolitically unstable communities and countries are in places where there's massive water scarcity. Someone said to me once when we were looking at where to run in Africa on the last expedition and, and I wanted to go to an area where they're, where they're confronting very big water scarcity problems at the moment. There's a lot of debate debate of fighting um, about a local river and access to that river and access to the water coming out of the river. And there's a concern that people are stealing the water out of the river. And they said to me, you can't go there because the wars that used to be fought with spears are now being fought with AK-47s. Yeah. It's not safe. And I thought to myself, you know, this water wars are not new, but the impact and the implications are getting worse all the time, both because of the weapons that we have access to, but also because the nature and extent of the water crisis is just getting worse. This is not a problem that's going to go away. By 2030, there's going to be a 40% gap between the amount of water we need and the amount of water we have available to us. That is a big, big problem with massive far-reaching consequences, not only for our economies, we just talked about how economies are driven by access to water, not only for our societies, which depend on ability to access water in order for us to live, but also for our peace and security. Because Yusuf was right, there will be water refugees and they will move into refugee camps. Displacement of people, the United Nations predicts by 2050 up to 700 million people could be displaced by water-related um, issues, disasters and problems. That is a massive number of people. Now think about that for a moment and what the consequences are for humanity, let alone for the individuals involved. It is phenomenal. For me, it is outrageous that we're not having these conversations at a high level. It is unacceptable that these issues are bubbling along underneath the ground that we're not literally, that we're, we're not having conversations about. And most importantly, that more action is not being taken. You know, I said at the beginning, I'm not a runner. I'm not good at it. I don't really enjoy running these crazy long distances in extraordinarily, extraordinary conditions. It's baking hot. Like it's some of the places I've run, it's like plus 47, 48 degrees Celsius. That's what, 120 degrees Fahrenheit? It's crazy. Okay. I ran Antarctica. It was so cold. My water bottles are freezing. My little fingertips were like cold as anything. My nose, it's hard. This stuff is hard. Would I like to not do it? You bet. But I'm going to keep doing it until we actually start paying attention and start working to solve this problem because whatever it takes is enough 
whatever it takes. Because if we can't solve this, there will be no future generations. Like it sounds like I'm the harbinger of doom and gloom, but it's it's real. I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes what happens when there's not enough water. I've seen the impact of lack of water in desert communities and how it hurts. And I've been to towns where they've run out of water, where it gets trucked in. In South Africa, one of my runs, I took bottles of water out to a community that has literally run dry. Kids staying home from a school in order to wait for our truck to arrive to bring them water. Why? Because if the water, if they're not there, they don't get the water or someone will take it. Water has become the most, so much more valuable to them than schools and their future and its life and its survival. And I watched when we drove off in our, in the, in the truck and we were going around a corner and people to the left expected that we were going to take them water and we turned right. Fights broke out on the street. We had teenagers running after our trucks begging for more water. This is not some weird story. This is real life that people across the world, not just in South Africa in that example, but in places like India where I met women who told me, yeah, we used to walk down the street and get water from our well, but the well is now dry. So now we wait for the tanker who comes once a week and we have to make sure our water lasts. Other women, yeah, we used to walk just down the bottom of the street to get the water from the well. Now we walk for an hour or more each way to go get water because those wells are all dry. Now we have to go to this one. Bedouins in in Jordan, like Yusuf, who spend days going from water, the places that they know gather water, running off the cliffs in order to be able to fill up their containers to survive. This is real life in real places all over the world, and it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. You hear these stories, and again, you know, at a micro level, and then what do you think about the macro level? You know, war, is it possible? Will it happen? Is it already happening? It's it's perplexing now. Mina, with a with a problem so complex, uh, what are some sustainable solutions uh, that you've come across uh, throughout your experience that you think uh, could really make a change in the world? Yeah, so I think that there are a couple of things I think we all need to do on a daily basis. I need, think we need to turn off the tap when we brush our teeth. That's pretty critical, not because it's going to save the world. We already ascertained that the vast majority of our water footprint comes from, it's invisible. It's the things that, you know, goes into the things we use, right. buy and consume every day. So do I think that turning off the tap is going to be the, the panacea for all of the world's ills? Definitely not. However, it reminds us every single day of water is a valuable resource. We need to pay attention and we need to protect it. So we need to take short showers. We need to turn off the tap when we brush our teeth. That should just be what we do. On a much bigger macro level of the things that need to happen in order for us to really fundamentally solve this water crisis, um, I think it's pretty simple. I think that there are basically six things that companies, investors and policymakers need to understand how much water they're using and where they're using it from. Is it sustainable? Is it long-term? Is it viable? The second is on quality. Is the water that's going out of my facility cleaner than the water that went in? It's a pretty simple question. Like zero pollution, like don't pollute. This is just wrong. How can we fix that? There are lots and lots of um, pieces of technology that can be implemented, lots of different ways of doing things. But simple question, is the water going out of my factory, my facility, or the facility or factory that I might have invested in cleaner than the water that's coming out? 
Transparency. We need to be transparent about what's actually going on in these companies. So, for example, we as investors or we as stakeholders or shareholders don't actually know what our water, what the water exposure is of most of the companies that we're investing in. So I am a brewing company or I'm a drink manufacturer. We're just going to use something that's simple. What happens if their facilities and their factories are in places that are extremely water scarce? Will there be enough water for them to continue operating and employing the people that they're employing? Will there be a social license to operate? So in Cape Town, when they face down day zero, there's a big brewing company who has an operation literally right next door to the spring where people were lining up for hours in the hot sun hmm. waiting to fill up their containers because they had no water in the house. You know, do they have a social license to continue to operate in that environment? That's a whole lot of transparency issues which we have no we have no insight on. So the third thing that we need to do is we need to get greater transparency. The fourth thing is water communities, water organisations and companies are very bad at working together. We need to get people to collaborate more closely. We need to find ways to work together in basins, in communities, in regions to get people to work together, to cooperate, to save a watershed, to save an ecosystem, to save, in simple terms, a river, to work out ways that we can actually replenish, that we can plant trees, that we can look after the river basin so we don't end up with a situation like we did in the Orange River or at the RLC or at the Salt Lake or anything. This requires collaboration. The fifth thing is we need to have advocacy, more advocacy, more people talking more about water and asking questions about it. And that's something that all of us can do, not just turn off the tap when we brush our teeth, not just take shorter showers, not look for where we're investing our money. You know, are they being transparent? Do we understand the water risks? But actually going out and saying water is a critical resource, I'm going to look for products that are made using water in a sustainable way. I'm going to look for to support companies that have announced what they're doing on water, that have said that they're doing the right thing. I am going to become a water advocate, maybe not running, trying to run 100 marathons 100 days or running across deserts or down rivers or any of that crazy stuff, but just making a decision at the point of sale, I'm going to have a vote at the point of sale about do I vote for this company or this company, that product or that product. And then the final thing uh, which has an impact on millions of lives around the world is about water sanitation hygiene, and that is about drinking water and about sanitation and hygiene services. We are in the middle of a global pandemic at the moment, and right in the midst of this when we're all being told to wash our hands, three billion people on the planet don't have access to had adequate hand-washing facilities. This has to change. So the thing, the final one of the six things is that we need to sign up to action on sanitation and hygiene. The World Business Council on Sustainable Development has a, a pledge on WASH, water sanitation and hygiene. Every company, every investor, every policymaker should be signing that pledge, right, and that is to help to solve this, this sanitation and hygiene problem. So, you know, it's again, Water, when I first got into water, everybody told me, oh, water is so complicated, Mina. It's so complicated. And I was like, no, I've got to make it simple. And here I am, like giving you not just one thing that we can all do, but six things um, that we need to do as a world around quantity, quality, transparency, collaborative, collaborative action, advocacy, and sanitation and hygiene. And those big six things, if we can solve those six things, we will have no water problem. 
You know, the problem we've got right now is that our trajectory to 2030 to achieving Sustainable Development Goal 6 is so far away from what we need to be. We need to do these six big interventions and then we will solve the water problem. Uh, I mean, I think it's just so impressive. You know, you're pursuing these obstacles. Uh, It's inspiring for somebody. Now, a business owner, let's take the grape landowner and farmer for uh, for an example, um, probably didn't set out to, you know, drain that river, right? And now he's being made aware of this instance, right? This land use problem. Um, When one runs into an obstacle like this, yeah, I got social pressures. I've got environmental pressures now. Everyone's telling me I have to stop growing my grapes, forego my profitability, potentially. What advice would you give to these business owners that run into these issues, that didn't wake up in the morning and say, you know, I want to destroy the world today? What advice would you give to them to overcome these obstacles and quench their thirst? It's actually a really good question because I think when we run up against obstacles in life, we immediately think, oh, I have to stop doing the thing that's made me run into this obstacle. It's easy to look at some of these obstacles as not just as hurdles, but as Mount Everest that we're trying to climb. And we think, oh, it's not possible to climb this. The reality is often that obstacles are what we make them. That that Mount Everest could actually be a little pebble in the road. Problems are problems because we phrase them, we frame them like that. At um, I mentioned to you that I were, tried to run 100 marathons in 100 days. Um, I wanted to show what it meant to be 100% committed to a, a big problem, water, of course, and what it took to really say we're going to fix this, that there should be no excuses. And my whole philosophy was 100 marathons, 100 days, 100% committed to one thing, and that's water. And when we started out to do this, um, I knew it was going to be a really big challenge. We had organised all the way along to tell stories as always. I was running in places that are water scarce or where there are water solutions or where there are interventions that we could we could interview people and talk to them about what they were doing because, again, this is not about the running. This is about solving the water crisis. And we got to marathon number 62 where we're in South Africa and um, I realised that I couldn't walk anymore. Actually, it was a realisation my team had come to probably a week before when they'd seen me not running, hobbling. I'd taken I'm walking with my sticks and anyone who's seen any of the footage will see it's, it's pretty harrowing um, to watch. I, of course, was filled with grit and determination. Nothing's going to stop me. I'm 100% committed to this thing. I'm going to do what it takes. And I literally got to the point where my team said to me, if you can't put a foot down, if you can't walk by this stage, so no, normally we stay in tents in pretty rural, regional places off the beaten track. We had made a decision we were going to stay in Airbnbs because I literally couldn't get up and down off the ground anymore because I was in so much pain. So we were completely unable to stay in tents. And we'd drive around with all our camping gear and staying. we had to stay in Airbnb. So staying in Airbnb and the team said to me, if you can't walk across the room unaided, not leaning on a chair, not leaning on the table, if you can't walk across the room, you're not going to go and run a marathon today. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I couldn't even take one step, Kevin. I could not physically take one step because my leg would not support me anymore. 
So I said, okay, grudgingly, let's go to the hospital. We went to the hospital, had the scans, had the x-ray, and the incredibly kind people at Cape Town Hospital who it was a Saturday. So they had been following my journey and they actually opened up radiology in order to scan me such incredibly phenomenal people. You know what? In this world, there are people who just like, you will never, ever be able to repay for their kindness. And they were some of them. And as I lay in that machine, I thought to myself, I think there's something badly wrong with me. And sure enough, the scan showed a massive fracture in my femur, which is the big bone in your body that supports your body weight uh, that runs from your knee to your hip. And it wasn't just a little crack. It was properly broken to a point where if I tripped over, if I twisted my leg the wrong way, my leg would literally break in half. Um, and I sat in a wheelchair and I thought, my world has ended. All I can see is darkness. And one of my mentors came down and he said to me, you know, Mina, this is not about, this is your journey, this journey of yours is not about the next day, the next 38 days that you need to run. This is about a 38-year journey that you still have in front of you to solve this water crisis. And much as I didn't want to hear it, I thought to myself, he's absolutely right. And at that point, he reframed the problem that I was confronting, which was twofold. It wasn't about running tomorrow, day 63. It wasn't about running. It wasn't about running more. It was actually about like, what do we need to do to solve this problem? And as I sat there chatting to him, we watched as a pretty amazing thing happened. And that is um, that day, day 63. So I finished day 62, day 63, we're in the hospital. And day 63, my team, the rest of my team came in and they said, you know what, Mina, this this responsibility, this goal, this not is not a burden for you to carry alone. This is something we want to help to deliver on. And they went out that day and they ran a marathon. And the next day we're in Cape Town and a bunch of people turned up and ran with them. And the next day people around the world started to run and more and more and more people joined. So by the time we got to day 100, we hadn't run 100 marathons in 100 days. We'd run thousands of marathons, thousands and thousands of people right across the world turned out, stepped up to run for water. 160 cities, more than 50 countries and territories of people running for the thing that we need the most in life, and that is water. I was humbled and inspired and completely honoured and blown away by the fact that so many people care, but that this thing that I care about so much that is integral to our lives and to the lives of the next generation would so mobilise and so motivate so many people that they would join this team for change. Why am I telling you that story? I'm telling you that story because when you're confronted by a big problem, whether you are a grape grower on the banks of the river in South Africa or whether you are someone running a beer manufacturing facility or you're an individual thinking, how can I solve this problem that I'm confronting? I think that there are a couple of things. The first one is how we frame the problem should be about solutions, not about the problem itself. 
The second is there's always a way. There's always a way. If you have purpose and passion and you're willing to persevere, you can always achieve what you need to achieve. It's just about the question of how. A grape grower doesn't need to stop growing their grapes. They just need to do things differently. There's a farmer um, in the Verde Valley in the US and they've been draining the Verde River in order to grow plantations of different kinds of crops. He set out systematically to say, we need this river to be available long-term. So first of all, he said, what kind of crops can deliver more return, cash return, so more more money per drop of water? Um, Not just yield of crop, but actually financial return. And what can I do to create extra value? So he has created a dual-layered approach. So he's got some nuts trees not a lot because they use a lot of water one gallon of water is one almond so he's got some nut trees which yield very high amount of revenue per per plant he's got a bunch of other crops that he rotates and then he said why don't i get together with the local community and put in a a factory that can process hops and then if i can grow hops i can process the hops then actually i'm going to make a significant amount of money plus if I can also find ways to be more efficient in my working and I can reduce the number of people I need to employ to look after my my, um, farm, then I'm also going to make more money. So he's automated everything. He's figured out how to do things more efficiently. The people he used to employ on his farm now in the factory and he gets to go on holidays. He's much more liquid in cash flow. He's just completely turned it around. And you know what? That Verde River is flowing extremely healthy. This is not about what the problem is. It's about how to create solutions. We do not have to keep doing things the way our parents and our grandparents did them before us. We can do things differently. We have the mindset. We have ability to access technology. We just need to be prepared to be able to rethink and reframe and then work out a path to achieving change. I'm back running. My leg was broken. It's fixed. I never thought I could do what I've done. I never imagined when I was that kid in a corner standing up and going, yes, I'm going to run 100 marathons in 100 days. Yes, I'm going to run across seven deserts on seven continents in seven weeks. Yes, I'm going to run 40 marathons in 40 days down some of the world's great rivers. Yes, I'm going to run in Antarctica and the Atacama and all of these like crazy places that I've run. Never would have believed it. But with purpose, with passion and with perseverance, we can achieve anything. It's powerful. It's powerful, absolutely powerful. And it seems like there's a ripple effect as well. Uh, when you, whether it's you or the business who ran into that obstacle, you rethunk it uh, and actually it ended up being uh, a better solution than it was originally, uh, where it's more sustainable. You're bringing in more cash flow. Um, now, what do you think that connection comes from when you go down, right? And your team steps up, then the hospital steps up, and then that 60. Uh, cities around the world and, and the people inside them step up and you have this community that's more passionate than ever going out and running those marathons. I have a feeling they weren't just doing it for the water. Why do you think they actually stood up and did something and acted upon this? So I think it's twofold. I think the first thing is that when people realize water is so essential to life, their lives, their way of being, and also the lives of kids, their kids in many ways, um, 
people are much more willing to act. That's the first thing. I really do think that there is this kind of awareness about water, this Houston, we have a problem moment of like, oh my goodness, I never knew the water problem was so big. Um, wow. I never knew that I was connected to it. I never knew what I could do to help to solve it. And here's what I'm actually going to do. So those, that part of it, I do think is important. The second part I think also is important and no, because I've been through this, which is I'm just one person. What impact can I really make? And I don't really count because I'm nobody. Like I'm just nothing. The reality is you don't have to be anyone to be someone. Any one of us is capable of doing great things. And I think part of my story that I hope people will take away is that I was that kid in a corner. I grew up, I, you know, I'm not, I don't have like famous relatives. I'm not some superstar. I'm just in, like, just any, I, I could be you, Kevin, you at the age of, you know, 40 or 46 or whatever it was that I actually started doing this crazy stuff. This, this could be you too, if you wanted to do it badly enough. So when we want something badly enough, anything is possible. So I think the second part of this is showing people you don't have to be anyone to be someone, um, that every one of us can do something. Every one of us can make an impact. Every one of us can do and achieve impossible, crazy stuff in the world. And I think, I think finally, um, someone said to me at the end of my run, um, the last hundred marathons, um, they wrote a tweet and they said, Mina, individually we can make an impact, but together we can change the world. And I think they're absolutely right. And this idea of being able to be part of a community that maybe individually we can't make a difference. Maybe individually we can only turn off our taps and when we're brushing our teeth and take short showers. But actually, if collectively we can make better decisions when we go to point of sale, if collectively we can start asking questions of the investments that we make as shareholders or as, as buyers or as employees, of what are these companies, these organisations, these policymakers, these decision makers doing, then individually maybe we can only make an impact. But together, if we all start asking those questions, we can make a difference in the world. And I think a huge power of what we're doing is building that sense of community, of asking those questions, not demanding, not getting out on the street and rioting or causing problems or protests, because this is not about stopping people from doing something. This is about doing things differently, about saying we can't do things the way our parents and our grandparents did them. We have to do things differently, applying all the lessons of technology and the applications that we can do and our ability to rethink. We need to apply that beginner's mindset attitude and we need to do things better and more efficiently. I love so I think that both of those things are kind of you know, I've thought about it a lot, obviously. When I was in a wheelchair for a long time, I was on crutches for even longer, a lot of time to sit back and reflect. Um, and I think that those are, are important. I absolutely love it. I mean, everyone, like you said, everyone has a role in this in this world to play. Uh, when will you play? When will you decide on that? Now, what advice do you have for someone listening to this right now? What changes can they make today that will have an impact tomorrow? Uh, great question. Um, do you mean have an impact on water or do you mean have an impact on like their lives? Impact on water specifically. Okay. Whether it's consumption or yeah. anything like that. So one of the easiest ways for people to save water is by reducing food waste. 
remember that hamburger that we talked about, that juicy hamburger in the beautiful toasted, uh, uh, probably wheat bun? Are you salivating? Ha <laughs> ha. Okay. So, so if you just think about if you just think about the food that you eat every day, a lot of people at home at the moment in the pandemic are cooking. And I think it's uh, we just look at food waste as waste. We look at all waste as waste. We're done with a T-shirt. We throw it out. We're done with an old pair of running shoes. We throw it out. You know what? There's an organisation called Souls for Souls that recycles shoes. You know what? There's loads of organisations that recycle clothing waste and make it into new textiles and make it into recycled fabric, like recycled wool that goes into sweaters like this or shirts that, you know, you we talked about how much cotton goes into your shirt. Imagine if you can buy a 100% recycled cotton shirt. Looks the same, feels the same, probably cheaper, and it uses zero water to make. So if you think about those kinds of things, rethinking this idea of waste is not waste. Waste is a valuable resource and we can rethink what we do with it. So in the context of food waste, thinking about what you put on your plate, eat what's on your plate and save the leftovers for tomorrow. So think, eat, save. Find new ways to use, to to produce less waste find new ways to recycle that waste and reuse it. And I think that's like a really practical, easy thing to, for people to do. In addition, of course, turning off the tap when you brush your teeth, taking short showers, all those kinds of, of things. You know, one of the things you can do to time yourself in the shower, I put the kettle on, I try to beat the kettle. Um, I can, sometimes you can play a song and the goal is to like, before the end of the song, be done with the shower. There's a lot of ways that you can gamify things around the house to use less water. Again, not because it's going to solve the world's problems, but because it raises the awareness in your own mind every single day of the things that need to be done to help to save water. And in the home, if you can reduce food waste, if you can look for recycled products when you're at the store, look for the little sign saying, you know, X amount of recycled products, those are much easier things to do. It seems like it always comes down to changing the conscious or the conscience of a consumer uh, education, understanding what at the core is really going on here and how you can make changes as an individual. Now, you also mentioned these world problems. Uh, it, it may not solve all of them. Uh, you mentioned 2030, the 40% gap that we will have come the time. Uh, to you, Mina, what leadership is needed uh, among the among the uh, agricultural community, the business community, uh, and people like yourself uh, uh, to make sure that we don't reach that point in time. Yeah, we need people to be prepared to step up for change, prepared to say it might not have been done before, but we're prepared to set out to do it. And part of, you know, these world record breaking first in the world kinds of things that I've done is to show people just because something hasn't been done doesn't mean it can't be done. We need leaders to step up, to put water at the top of the agenda, to commit to doing the six things I talked about, quantity, quality, transparency, working together, advocacy, and wash, water, sanitation, hygiene. We need them to commit to those six things for SDG 6. If we really want to achieve these targets set out in SDG 6 by 2030, we need real leadership by real companies and real investors and real policymakers to say the time to act on water is now. It's not tomorrow. It's not next week or next year. There is no manana in water. 
water is a problem today that needs action right now today. It, it, it's such a serious topic uh, and we need more people to step up. Uh, so for leaders listening to this now, Mina, what is your definition of a real leader? <laughs> you asked me this at the beginning and I thought to myself, far out, what am I going to answer? Like, that's like really serious. That's like really deep. I need to come up with something really significant. And I thought, no, you Muppet, you need to just say what you really believe. And the honest truth is, I think that in our world today, we have a dearth of real leaders. We have a dearth of people who are authentic, who are passionate, who believe in something far bigger than themselves and who are willing to go the distance to solve whatever problem or achieve whatever passion they've set out for themselves. So what do I think a real leader is? I think a real leader is authentic, passionate, driven by a purpose and has the perseverance to make it happen. I think a real leader does understand that this is not about making an impact as an individual, but this is about the role that collective action has to play. I think a real leader understands that it takes role models to show people that you can be anyone, but you can be anything. That wherever you want to go, you can go if you have the purpose, the passion and the perseverance to make it happen. I think real leaders today dictate and I think real leaders should support. And I think the time for a new kind of leadership, the kind of real leader that understands that this is about authenticity. This is about empowering people to help to make our world better. I think those kinds of real leaders will ultimately help us as a community to change the world for the better. Mina, well said. Just want to appreciate you coming on the Real Leaders podcast today. I'm going to have to go home and rethink my wardrobe. Uh, it's just too hard when you have this, uh, you know, so much drip. So uh, for Mina Gooley, I'm Kevin Hours asking to go out there pursue and persevere over things to make things happen there we go Ooh, and always folks keep it real mina thanks for your time thanks kevin thank you good people for listening to this episode of the real leaders podcast with mina Gooley. we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did folks and if you want to stay involved and join the real leaders community there's three ways to do it the first way is to subscribe either to our print or digital publication where you will receive one of the best leadership magazines, if not the best, my personal favorite, in the world. Secondly, subscribe to the podcast. It's free. Third, follow us on social media, where we put out bite-sized clips of these interviews and inspiring stories on a daily basis. And lastly, folks, if you want to watch any of these interviews, attend live, ask questions, make sure you go online to realleaders.com slash podcast and RSVP for an upcoming interview with a leader just for you. That's it for me. Thanks for listening to this episode and stay tuned for the next one.